Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Suchar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so the, the Advent, we're in the middle of the Advent season. Some of us grew up with Advent. If you come from a more liturgical background, you're very familiar with the four weeks of Advent that lead up towards uh, Christmas. If you come from a non-denominational or Pentecostal background, you have no idea what I'm talking about at the moment. Uh, it's just Christmas. Uh, but uh, Advent is the season where we celebrate and we look forward to the coming of Christ. And so it's distinct from Christmas in that Christmas is Jesus has arrived, he is here, and Advent is the longing, the anticipation of Jesus coming. It's the time in which we contemplate the theological concept that we call incarnation. Now incarnation, what we mean by that is that God himself has become flesh. He has come in the flesh, incarnation, and he has lived among us. He is a per- he has become a human, the Son of God, and has shown us what it truly means to be God, who he is. And so we're in the study of John, where we're studying who Jesus is. And each week through Advent, um, we're, we're talking about what it means to be longing for the coming Messiah. And that's why uh, the Advent season is marked by Advent calendars, where, you know, I don't know if you have kids or if you grew up uh, doing advent calendars, my kids, we get just like the Trader Joe's chocolate uh, advent calendar. You know, maybe you don't have kids, but you just get the calendar anyways because it brings you joy to open another little chocolate packet every day. Um, and it's, it leads up to the day of Christmas, which is just when you get the big gifts. And so similarly, we wait the return of our Messiah. He came once as a child, born of the Virgin Mary, God himself, And he will come again to make all things new. And so as we continue through the series on John, we're going to have an Advent bent to many of these sermons. Because many of the people that Jesus is interacting with are longing for a Messiah in the same kind of way that we think about longing for a Messiah through the Advent season. Today we're going to be talking about this woman at the well. And I think many of us will relate with this woman 
And what happens in this passage is that Jesus actually shows her that all of her longings in this life are truly a longing for the coming of the Messiah, but a pale reflection of it. That all of our, reflect, all of our longings in life are actually a pale reflection of the longing that we have to be satisfied in Christ. That's the message of today. And so uh, we're, I'm excited to, to share it with you. Many of us know that we should feel this longing for Jesus, but we don't. We don't feel this longing for Jesus. We might feel jaded or apathetic. We might have this mindset of been there, done that. I've tried the Jesus thing. It didn't work for me. And so when it comes to finding satisfaction in Jesus, we just aren't there. I can, I can even see it now, like me telling many of you that Jesus wants to bring satisfaction to your life, that he actually wants to bring living water, streams of living water into your heart and into your life to bring more joy and satisfaction than you could ever imagine. And I just see the eyes rolling out the door. Because you've been there and you've done that. You feel jaded and apathetic. Many others of us, we don't have this longing for the coming Christ because we feel fairly satisfied with what this life has to offer. We're in a pretty decent place. But friends, feeling satisfied with what this life has to offer is like feeling satisfied with a garden salad on Thanksgiving Day. It just isn't what it's meant to be. Well, this life has nothing to offer compared to what Christ has. Friends, Jesus really does bring joy and satisfaction beyond anything that we can look for in this life. Following Jesus really is the best way to live. And he's seeking people like you and me to bless in this kind of way. So I have four points today as we walk through this entire story. We read the first 14, 15 verses of John 4 today. We're going to be going all the way through the story of the woman at the well. It's 45 verses. I didn't want to read them all and then read them all again as I'm going through the sermon. But we'll be looking at this entire story. And the points of today is, one, who is longing for a Messiah? Two, what are we longing for instead of the Messiah? Three, how do we receive the satisfaction that Jesus offers? And four, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? First, who is longing for the Messiah? Well, I want to introduce us to this woman at the well. Who is this woman? Uh, what's she all about? And where does she come from? There's a lot that's assumed in this passage because the original readers would just understand what a Samaritan is and who a Samaritan is, and so you wouldn't have to explain who the Samaritans are, but for us, we might need a little bit more explanation of who a Samaritan is. At, these, at this time, the Samaritans and the Jewish people were pretty bitter rivals, bitter uh, enemies, but it wasn't always so. The Samaritans didn't even exist until about 722 B.C., before that, the land that we call Samaria in the Bible times, the land that we see as Samaria, was just the northern kingdom of Israel. Maybe not the entire northern kingdom of Israel, but a portion of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when you read your Old Testament, you see, uh, especially in, in the books of First and Second Kings, you see a, a history of both the southern and the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they split 
after King Solomon died, he had a very bad secession plan, and the, the two of them split, and they, um, and they, they didn't get along much after that. There would be seasons where they would, and then there would be seasons where they wouldn't. And so what actually ended up happening, even though they're the same people group, all the people of Israel, what actually ended up happening in 722 BC, uh, the king of Assyria took over the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they would do at that time is they would uh, dispossess people of their land. It was almost a form of torture and a form of staying in control of them. So they took the people of Israel at that time, this is before Judah was taken over, the southern kingdom, it would later be taken over. They took the people out of that land and then they resettled that land with people from another area. And those people would intermarry with the people that were remaining there. They didn't take all the uh, Israelite people out of the land. They just took most of them, especially the, the people that were, important in the time and day. And so they resettled the land, and then what would happen is they intermarried with the people that were already living there. And so what ended up happening is it yielded this kind of uh, this kind of group that wasn't quite Jewish, but wasn't not Jewish. It wasn't not Israel, but it wasn't quite all Israel. And so every commentator, this seems rather rude uh, to put it this way, but every commentator that I read about the Samaritans said that the Jewish people of the day, quote unquote, regarded the uh, Samaritan people as racial half-breeds and that they were tainted people, that their religion was tainted. And so the Samaritans and the Jewish people did not see eye to eye. As time went on, the Samaritans developed their own temple because the temple of the southern kingdom was in Jerusalem, the temple of Israel. And so they developed their own temple and they put it near this place and it had, it had historic significance as well. And so this is why these two aren't getting along. They're, they're just kind of these bitter enemies throughout the years, at least the past 700 years. And so we come into this and Jesus is talking with this woman that normally a Jewish person wouldn't be talking to a, uh, to a Samaritan person because the Jewish people just saw themselves as better than the Samaritan people. Now when it says that he was passing through a town called Sychar uh, near a field that Jacob had given his son, uh, this should ring some bells, okay? Now I wouldn't expect it to ring a bell in everyone. I wouldn't expect it to ring any bells except for this. I preached on this exact location like six months ago. Okay, so maybe some of you with a very good memory would have the Bible geography to recognize that we're talking about the same location that we talked about just six months ago. It was this summer that we talked about this. And there's a story in Genesis as we were going through our series on Genesis, and the story is actually about Dinah and her brothers. Dinah is kidnapped and raped by Prince Shechem. And what happens after that is totally gruesome, and you're just going to have to download the sermon to hear it, or go read the passage, you know, uh, because it's not a sermon for today. I'm not going to get into all of it. Um, there's a lot to explain in that passage, but it took place right here in this location uh, that we're talking about here at, at Sychar, where Jesus is meeting this woman at the well. In verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, this is interesting, because typically women uh, of that day would go to draw water together. It wasn't something that was an independent activity. You usually went in the safety of a group. Oftentimes, how women go to the restroom, still to this day, in the safety of a group. And so, 
they would go in the safety, and they would also not go at noon, which is the sixth hour that we have here. It's the hottest time of the day. The sun is shining brightly. And so this woman, she is a part of an outcast group of people being the Samaritans, and she is even an outcast among the outcasts. It seems as though she does not even want to see the other women of the village. She could not be any more different than the last person that Jesus was dealing with. Uh, two weeks ago, I, last week we had a guest preacher, but two weeks ago we did the, the very previous passage to this one. We were looking at John 3, and who was the guy that Jesus was talking to? Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is this well-respected teacher of Israel, religious person. He had his act together. He comes to Jesus, and he's interested in what Jesus has to say. So we have this person who is well-off, well-to-do, has money, he's respected, he's educated, he's influential, he's a teacher. And then now we have this woman. She's not even given a name in the passage. She's an outcast among the outcasts. She's broken. These two could not look any more different from the outside. But I think that the author has very intentionally placed them together. Because he wants us to see that both Nicodemus and the woman at the well are actually longing for the same thing in life. They're both longing for meaning and purpose that this world cannot provide. Nicodemus had it all, and he's still interested in getting more. This woman at the well can't get the joy that she's looking for. She's broken, and she's going to Jesus. They both have a longing for something that this world cannot provide. So who is longing for the Messiah? All of us. Every single person on the planet. Because we were all created in the image of God. And we were meant to reflect the glory of God. And we were created with the purpose of enjoying fellowship with God. Of walking with them through the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. But yet sin has broken us all. And so now... Ever since the, that day of the first sin, we've all been broken. We've all had this missing relationship with God. And we're all longing to be made right with God. It was our created purpose. That's what all of us are actually most seeking in life, whether we realize it or not. And so who, long, who longs for the Messiah but all of us? Point two, why or, or what are we longing for instead? How do these longings manifest themselves in our life? We all long for the Messiah, but we misplace that longing for the Messiah with things of this world. Let's continue our story here. Jesus said to her, verse 7, that's, uh, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, not even to speak of the fact that he's bridging these barriers between men and women of the day. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, he introduces us to this idea of living water. And this is an idea that none of us can truly appreciate because 
Well, maybe some of us could truly appreciate it. Those of us who are Americans and have lived in America for our entire life will have a very hard time understanding and appreciating this, unless, I guess, if you lived in Flint, okay? Uh, then you might understand it a little bit. But almost anywhere in the United States, you turn a knob, clean drinking water comes out. It's been treated, it is clean. Sure, you might send it through a filter again, but relatively clean. But in many areas of the world, drinking water is scarce. And the water that people drink would gross you out many times. And in this area of the world, it's a rather arid climate. And so we don't really understand what it means to be truly thirsty. But this woman certainly did. And so Jesus, talking about water in this day and age is a much different thing than speaking about it today. But what Jesus is telling her is that he has something that is as necessary and good for her spiritual life as water is for her physical life. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And so she's totally misunderstood him, as often is the case. Just as Nicodemus did before, she has misunderstood what Jesus is saying. But even in her misunderstanding, she speaks a great truth. Because this is one of the points that Jesus is trying to make. Yes, I am greater than your father Jacob. I do have something that he could not offer you. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying to her is that the living water, it is a metaphor. But what you're looking for in this life, it won't satisfy. But if you come to me, I will give you that which truly satisfies. Not only will I give you that which truly satisfies, it will satisfy you enduringly. It will continue to satisfy. It will be a spring of water, not just water, but a spring of water coming out of your own heart. You won't get, if you drink from this, you'll get thirsty again. But the water that I give you will continue to bring satisfaction to all of your longings for all of your life. Uh, For years, I had a routine on Sunday mornings that I I would get myself ready for church. And uh, because we were starting the church here um, and trying to get it going, uh, I would hop on my bike and come before my family. And my, my fam- we only have one car, um, as many people in Somerville do. And so I would just get on my bike. I live about a mile from here, and I would come to church. But if anyone's ever ridden their bike to this building, you know that we are truly a city on a hill. <laughs> this building is up a very large hill. And so I would ride my bike up the hill. And the thing is, I live down that way, uh, near Powderhouse Circle, and, and I would, you can see the hill from a long way. You know what's coming. And then it starts, and it's just very gradual, and you can see the top of the hill from where you start. And so you just know you have to pedal, put it in the low gear, and get up the hill. You get to, but here's the, the thing, is you get to the top of the hill, 
And then you get one second of reprieve, and there's a secret hidden second part of the hill. You still have to go up a little bit more. And this is how we live our lives with the longings that we have in our life. As we think, if once I can get up that hill, I'll feel satisfied. We think this all the time. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who believe that marriage will complete them. That somehow their life is going to be complete once they get married. And then they get married and all of a sudden they have a fight. And then they realize, oh wait, this doesn't do everything that I thought it was going to do. Not to mention the fact that the most complete human who ever walked the earth was a single man, Jesus Christ. Marriage cannot complete you. You get up to the hill and then you just want something a little bit more. Uh, You're a smart bunch. And uh, there's a lot of people that I've talked to that's like, once I get done with this paper, once I get done with this project, then I'll be happy. But you get to the end of it, and it is the well that will not satisfy forever. What is it in your life that you answer the question, if I could just have this, I would have joy? A little bit of money, my company getting to this part, me getting this promotion, finishing the program, getting married, having children, whatever it might be. Friends, just look at the past of your life. (laughs) Every time you've gotten it, it's been a splash of water in the face, but not a spring of eternal life from within you. What Jesus is saying is that if you pursue things in this world, that is just water from outside. But what I give is water that flows from inside. That will bring true, lasting satisfaction and joy that you cannot get anywhere else. That is the message of Jesus, that if we trust in him, we can have the joy of a loving relationship with our Father, with our Creator, with a personal God who wants to know us, who cares for us. Tim Keller says this oftentimes about people like us in our church. He, he said this, as long as you think there's a good chance that you will achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think that you have a shot You experience your inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope. So we live our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. Is that not true for a driven bunch like us? We all are looking for something to give us meaning and purpose. And most of us will keep climbing the hills in search of that one thing. But Jesus gives us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The famous Oxford literature professor, C.S. Lewis, who gets a a shout-out every week, pretty much, um, he he put it like this. "If If I find it, if I find in myself a desire of which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is not that I was, is, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that that is so, I must take care 
on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to, uh, to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. You see, our earthly pleasures and joys are just a, a faint echo, a faint reflection of the true satisfaction that we can receive with Jesus. Verse three, how do we receive, or not verse three, point three, uh, how do we receive this satisfaction that Jesus offers? Verse 15, the woman has the same question. Uh, she looks at him and she says, sir, give me that water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water from the well anymore. Well, she's kind of misunderstanding it, isn't she? But she still wants what Jesus has to offer. Verse 16, Jesus tells her, he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. I, when you say I have no husband, for you've had five, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, I've always viewed this as Jesus trying to humiliate the woman so that she can see her need for a savior. Uh, he's trying to point out and exasperate her shame and guilt so that she'll turn to him. But that doesn't seem to be how she receives it. Because when she leaves this encounter with Jesus, she goes and tells everyone, I met a man who told me everything I did. Oh yeah, well what all have you done? It doesn't seem like she feels a, a, just a boatload of shame it seems like she responds to this more in wonder and amazement than in shame. And the reality is that this is a first century society. And a woman in a first century society did not have the, right or the rights to demand a divorce in these times. No, it's much more likely that this woman has been powerless and has been passed around as an object to be used as opposed to a person to be cherished. She reminds us of Dinah, does she not, who is in the same location. What Jesus is saying to this woman is, woman, though you move around during the heat of the day so you can go unseen, and though you feel as though no one really cares about you, I see you, and I care about you. I've got you. He's helping the one who previously went invisible to be seen. Maybe you can relate. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Uh, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Um, again, this is a fair question. This is a, a fair thing. Maybe she's trying to distract Jesus. Okay, That does happen sometimes. Uh, D.A. Carson, in, in his commentary on this, he said, it's always easier to talk about theology than to deal with truth that is personally distressing. And so that's something I always think about when people come with theology questions of what, is this, what are they getting at that's going on in their hearts oftentimes. Sometimes people just ha genuinely have theology questions, though. And maybe she's not trying to distract them. Maybe she's doing that thing that happens to me oftentimes when I tell people I'm a pastor. They'll say, oh, you're a pastor. Well, I've always wondered this. 
and they just ask me a question. That might be what's happening to her now. She realizes that he is a prophet, and so she's got a question for him. It's a valid question, but Jesus isn't getting into this debate. He's not even going to give it the time of day. He just moves on. He says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. A few things to point out here. Um, first, Jesus is saying the day is coming where you, where you won't worship on the temple or on the mountain. This debate is, is null because what did he do just a couple chapters ago? He walked in the temple, he flipped over the tables, and he said, I'm the place of worship. I'm the place where God has come into the world. You don't need to go to a location anymore. All you need is this spring of water that I'm trying to offer to you, lady. He also says this thing that can distract us sometimes. He says the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I've thought, why does God care so much if we worship him? Is he just some glory-thirsty monster in the sky that just wants us to bring him praises? I don't think that that's it. But I think that what it actually is is the whole purpose for why Jesus came. God wants not us to worship him so that he'll be made more of, but he wants us to worship him because he wants to share his glory. You see, worship isn't just for his benefit, but it's for our benefit. We get to enjoy who he is. He sent the son into the world so that through belief in him, we might be united with him and that we might be brought into the rapturous delight that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed together throughout all eternity. You see, when we trust in Christ, it's not merely that we become buddies with Jesus, but we're welcomed into this loving relationship that he's enjoyed throughout eternity past. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He, he was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. This is the very first person that Jesus reveals his true identity to in as many words. Sure, you might have been able to pick it up as we've gone through until now, but this is the first person that he just completely discloses who he is in the book of John. That this woman who doesn't even receive a name in the story receives the glory of understanding who Jesus is. And the reality is that Jesus wants to reveal himself to us today, and he wants to give us the same gift that he's offering this woman at the well. And how do we receive this, this gift of satisfaction? Don't miss it. The message of Jesus is not just salvation for your souls. It's not just a, a get out of hell ticket. The message of Jesus is a gift of satisfaction and joy. Sure, Christianity, there's a lot of denying yourself. There's like some repenting of sin. There's some aspects where you pick up your cross. But do not pretend like that's not joyful. 
The message of Jesus is one of joy and satisfaction. And as you follow him, it becomes more joyful and more satisfying. How do we receive this? But we just have to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. We have to recognize that he is the Messiah. And he has come to do this in our life. And we follow him with our entire lives. We reorient everything in our life to following him. That is hard, but it is the most joyful way to live. And if we are to reorient our life, then how shall we live? Point four, how shall we live with a reoriented life? What does this woman do? How does she respond whenever Jesus reveals himself to her? Verse 28. So the woman left her jar, her water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, Come to see a man. Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So what does she do? She leaves everything and she goes to tell everyone, Here is a man who knows me. She's not afraid of her testimony. She's not afraid of going and saying, hey, this guy told me everything I did in life. I know I'm an outcast, but I'm going to come to you and tell you, hey, this person, this person's awesome. This person told me everything. Could this be the Messiah? She's not afraid that her reputation would harm Jesus's reputation. She's not afraid that her repentance would harm the cause of Christ and the cause of the Messiah. In fact, what it does is she goes forward and she says, hey, I need to tell you about this guy because my story just brings him more credibility. She's so caught up in the good news of Jesus that she's caught in the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Friends, every major movement of the Holy Spirit that has happened in the history of the world has been started with repentance. Even if you just look at Acts chapter two, when it first, the Holy Spirit first came down, Peter got up and he preached a sermon. The people were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized. It's always been repentance. And so this woman, she's not afraid of her repentance, but she wants to share it with everyone. She's not afraid of her former way of life or who she is. She wants to go and share about who Jesus is because he loves the outcast. This woman, she had success in sharing about who Jesus is. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony, because she said, He told me all that I ever did. And when the disciples of Jesus make their way back to the well, they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? <laughs> Who are you talking to? What's going on here? We got some food for you. I don't know what's happening. And look what Jesus says. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent, to, I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. All right. So Jesus is telling the disciples that the harvest is plentiful. He's saying, I'm sending you out. 
And he's helping them understand that sometimes you're sowing, which means sometimes you're planting the seeds, and sometimes you're reaping the fruit from the seeds. But both rejoice together. And as we go out from here, if we have received the water of eternal life that springs forward, the natural response is that you want to share the good news of the satisfaction of Jesus Christ with those around you. Sometimes it will merely be sowing, and sometimes you will get to reap. But you don't get to reap unless someone else has already sowed in that place, usually. Sowing and reaping sometimes can go very closely together. Ethiopian eunuch, that type of thing. But even him, he's like reading the scripture. It's been sown in his heart before he's there. We have the springs of living water, and every person on this planet is made to long for those springs of living water. I used to think, I'd be afraid that people would feel like I'm selling snake oil to them or something like that if I told them about Jesus Christ. But you have to realize that they're already hooked on the snake oil. They're hooked on the thing that won't satisfy. And we have the real cure. We have the real water. That will bring satisfaction for their souls. Many years later, just as he did here where Jesus looks at the woman and asks for a drink of water, he says, I'm thirsty. Jesus again would say, I thirst. As he hung on the cross and he called down and he said, I thirst. And on this cross, he would bear the shame and guilt of this woman at the well. He would pay her penalty just as he would pay the penalty of each and every one of us on all those who would call on his name so that we might be united with him forever, so that we might receive the joy of salvation, that he took our penalty so that we might receive the fellowship that he offers. Church, that is the call to you today. Uh, if you have received, if you have never received that joy, the satisfaction that we're talking about with the streams of living water, the, the invitation is open. We'd love to talk with you and help you to understand that more. Or if you have received it, but you've neglected the spring that's been in the heart for quite a while, and you've ignored it, maybe boarded it up, hey, it's time to let it flow again and to come and to receive satisfaction that you wouldn't normally, that you haven't in a long time. Jesus really does satisfy our longings, that we're all longing for him, and what you most are longing for in this life is him, and allow those longings to point you forward to your longing for him. Every week we take uh, part in a meal that actually is a meal of longing because Jesus said we do this until he returns. And as we take this meal, we know that when he returns, he'll come with a feast. And so today we just take a small portion of a meal to be reminded that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And so as we take this meal, we're reminded of what he has done for us uh, if you're a Christian here today, I, I encourage you to come and receive this meal to evaluate your own self. Are you walking? Are you following Christ? To repent of any, unfor, any unrepentant sin and to go to him. 
Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper? Father, I thank you for the ultimate satisfaction and joy that you provide. And many of us are coming in weary, heavy laden. The Christmas season can be difficult for many of us. But God, I pray that you will provide the satisfaction that we are longing for. And that we would be reminded of the way that you care for us, the way that you love us, and the good news of the gospel, which is that we are not alone, but that you are near and you're kind and you care. Uh, Father, help us to receive you as this woman did, to see the streams of living water. And Jesus, we pray that uh, whether this be the first time or the millionth time, that we would receive it anew and we'd enjoy it again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.